0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. And this is Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, we want to uh, elaborate a little bit on that and that uh, it was, you know, quite a, quite a day yesterday on or on 9-11 with all of the things on television and remembering and that was the uh real kickoff of desert shield and desert storm and we've got phil forsberg lieutenant colonel retired phil forsberg on and he's our host of the show and uh Does a wonderful job on talking about remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Good afternoon, Phil. Good
2: afternoon, David.
1: And uh, am I coming through with you okay?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'll work with this.
1: Good, good. Okay. So, you know, Phil, one of the things I wanted to... What did you think about Saturday?
2: Well, um... <clears throat> now, David, uh, I want to I want to bring to your remembrance <clears throat> that uh, uh, I, if I heard you correctly, you were saying that nine uh, eleven kicked off Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and that's not exactly correct. Um, it may have been the other way around. Uh, we uh, <clears throat> we went to uh, Desert Shield in nineteen ninety. And nine uh, eleven, of course, happened in two thousand and one. Right. Uh, <clears throat> now, I, I I did hear uh, President Trump mentioned uh, in an interview the other day that uh, he felt we never should have gone into the Middle East at all. Which I, by that, I infer he means uh, what we did in, in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Um, not a hundred percent. I agree with that but uh, <clears throat> we uh, y- yesterday was quite a day for remembering you know uh, if you'll allow me I'll tell you my story about
1: uh, 9/11 oh absolutely you know,
2: 2001 and uh, it was uh, <clears throat> during one of the periods in which I had uh, left active duty I uh, sometimes refer to myself as a, a serial quitter because I quit the Army uh, three times and got dragged back uh, three times. And so I actually have uh, four DD-214s. Wow. And It was during one of my periods when I was not in the, the regular Army or active Army. I was uh, actually um, uh, in the Army uh, National Guard, and I was just switching over to the Army Reserve and uh, I was working uh, my full-time job I was actually an airline pilot and uh, I was flying passengers out of uh, <clears throat> out of Chicago O'Hare uh, Airport in those days um, and I can recall that uh, the day of 9-11 uh, I was in uh, Wilkes-Barre Scranton Pennsylvania and I was supposed to, uh, take a load of people early in the morning from, uh, from Wilkes-Barre to, um, to, uh, Chicago. And, uh, uh, when I came down to get my airplane or come come down to get the vans taken to the airport that morning, uh, found that, uh, the plane didn't come in. It, uh, weather had prevented them from landing in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. They had relocated uh, the airplane up to uh, Binghamton, New York, and it landed there. And so there was a cab waiting to take me to Binghamton. And uh, so my crew and I went up to, uh, to Binghamton and uh, got the airplane, brought it back to uh, Wilkes-Barre. And this was very, very early in the morning. And uh, then we left uh, at about 8.30 in the morning, if I recall correctly, on that Tuesday morning of 9.11. We left uh, Wilkes-Barre, I think we got out of there finally by about 8.30 in the morning. And, uh, of course, uh, everything began to, uh, the, all the evil uh, sort of happened right after that. <clears throat> and. To be quite honest with you, we flew all the way to uh, to Chicago uh, without knowing that uh, there had been attacks. And um, when we got to, well, we called in range a little bit late, and uh, our operations people told us that we would have to go to the uh, what they call the penalty box at O'Hare. is a place where they send you if you if you don't have a gate you you sit and wait there and uh anybody that's flown into o'hare probably knows all about the penalty box um whether or not you knew it was called that but um so uh when we got on the ground you know i know these people they were very very late they were several hours late they were uh you know, unhappy. And uh, so I told him, well, we don't have a gate, but if if you have uh, a cell phone, you can uh, go ahead and use it at this time. And uh, as I was uh, getting out, I was gonna go use the restroom in the back of the plane. And my uh, first officer turned on his phone and immediately began to ring. And it was his mother and he was quite agitated. And I asked him what was going on, and he said uh, there were terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, and the, uh, the Pentagon and the World Trade Center were nothing but rubble, he told me. And uh, I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure that's not true. So I uh, I made my way to the back of the plane and uh, used the facility there, and I returned back uh, up to the front to get back in the cockpit. I turned around and looked at the passengers. Those that did not have cell phones were uh, kind of had an unhappy look on their face, looked, you know, that we were so late and uh, getting later. And the those that were, uh, that did have phones were just staring at me and they were kind of ash and white in their expression. Um, so I, at that point, I realized it was probably quite true that something at least had transpired as I recall so, uh, all flights I,
1: were grounded at that point right I'm sorry David as I recall all flights were grounded at that point correct
2: yeah but you know they had they had to have a way of getting the flights on the ground that were already airborne which was where where we were um, and so um, <clears throat> so I uh you know, I I got on the flight attendant's handset and I, I made an announcement to the cockpit. I said, um, you know, the reason that we're late uh, now and don't have a gate is because of uh, terrorist attacks in New York and Washington. And I said, if you if you have a, a mobile phone or if you have access to a mobile phone, then uh, now is probably a very good time for you to let your loved one know, loved loved ones know that you're all right and. Uh, So, with that, went back up uh, to the cockpit eventually. um, the First time I'd ever heard this in all my years operating out of uh, O'Hare, O'Hare Ground made a call to those people who were waiting for a gate. Said, uh, we've been instructed to evacuate the tower and uh, if you uh, have a clear uh, taxi path back to your gate, and uh, you've cleared the taxi at your own discretion. Uh, and they said, O'Hare ground out, which means they're, they had left the net. And um, well, eventually they called us for a gate. We went in and uh, got to our gate. And uh, it was the only time ever, about, I'd say 10 o'clock in the morning central time. It was about the only time ever Um, that I was at O'Hare at that time of the morning on a Tuesday morning and there was not a single turbine engine running anywhere on the field. And as I did my walk around inspection on the airplane, it was was spooky because it was broad daylight and there was no engine noise on the field and um, I could actually uh, see and hear birds flying over, which never happened at O'Hare but uh yeah it was it was a very unique experience
1: yeah and it's one of those things that uh, everyone remembers or well, let me ask when you first heard about it did you think it was a large plane or a small plane that had possibly flown in uh,
2: you know i can't remember what i thought uh i mean <clears throat> i'll be to tell you, honestly, uh, I had one tour where I worked at National Guard Bureau, and uh, we, uh, we were very concerned at National Guard Bureau about homeland defense and uh, being prepared for uh, threats against the United States, what we called asymmetrical warfare. And I remember the, the fellow who was in charge of communications, the communications director for... National Guard Bureau had had actually posited that somebody if they were willing to give their life could use a uh, an airliner uh, as a weapon to you know crash into a uh, a large important building and that's apparently exactly what they did
1: yeah. He he pegged that one. When I first heard it, I was, you know, I know exactly what I was doing and where I was coming from. I just picked up a computer from my uh, computer repair person, and I heard it on the news. And my first thing was it it had to have been a small plane, you know. And then... um, the more that more information I got back to my office I turned on television and then my first thought was my office at that time wasn't that far from my home so I went home told my wife I'm going to go pick up the boys because this is history and uh, the schools here I don't know what they did other places but the schools here sort of shut it down they didn't uh, you know, they didn't not have anything going on, but they pretty well shut down the televisions and all that. So I went and picked up my two boys, brought them home, and said, you know, this is history. And watch it, and it's terrible, and but it will go down, you know, you'll be talking about it the rest of your lives. And uh, the skulls. The uh, principal at the high school and junior high school weren't weren't too fond of me pulling the boys out, but, you know, it, it happened. And, uh, you know, that would be like covering up pictures of uh, Pearl Harbor or something. It happened, and it is history, and they should know about it and how it happened and everything else. Let me ask you now, and I've been thinking about this uh since our infamous pullout in Afghanistan, um, is there any you know? And we left them everything, including Stingers. And um, is there any concern within the airlines about Stingers now, or are airports being uh, being uh, attacked by uh, Stingers?
2: Well, <clears throat> I know that uh, uh, the job that I was given in the Army Reserve uh, right after nine eleven was uh, an emergency preparedness liaison officer for the state of Florida, and um, we had, in, in uh, of course, they they made some structural changes to uh, to the. Uh, Command the homeland defense, and and they uh, they uh, stood up what they called NORAD Northcom, which is uh, uh, was a functional command that uh, that provided for our national defense, and uh, what had been NORAD became NORAD Northcom or Northern Command for North America, and uh, the. we had, at our conference in 2004, we had the, the commander of NORAD North come, come and uh, and speak uh, to the uh, our liaison officer group. Um, at the time, I had uh, just become a, um, what they call a federal flight deck officer, where I was deputized by Homeland Security to, uh, to carry a uh... a pistol uh... when i flew the airplane and uh... in any event uh... he you know uh, he he stood up and he said we're they're not going to have another nine eleven and his reasons were number one uh... you know we've we've taken all sorts of steps to prevent that and increased security at airports number two the um, american people were on their guard not allow for that, uh, you know, the, the, the citizens on the airplanes knew uh, what was at stake and they, they wouldn't let anything like that happen. And he, he said, number three, and I thought he was going to talk about the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program. Uh, and uh, he said, number three, uh, we have NORAD Northcom now, and uh, if uh, anybody, you know, takes over an airplane like that. I'll just send some airplanes to shoot them down and uh, you know as as a captain of, of an airliner I didn't feel all that good about that I thought well um, we, uh, we <laughs> I need to be able to use my newly acquired skills as a federal flight deck officer before we go shooting down my airplane and uh, so I would after that I instructed my first officers, you know, if there were to be any kind of um, hijacking attempt or whatever where I would have to, uh, use deadly force or whatever that, uh, we wouldn't announce that to ATC until we were landing assured uh, (laughs) at our destination. Uh, I didn't want to give um, some young Air Force pilot the, uh, Opportunity to come score some points by shooting down my airplane when the situation was already handled.
1: Oh yeah! Uh, on that, let's uh, let's take our first break. We'll be back with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Phil Farsberg right after this.
0: Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran.
1: And we're back on America's Web Radio, and we're right in the middle of Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg. And Phil was telling us about what he was doing on 9-11, and uh, certainly more exciting. I would have figured that there would have been a ton of chatter on the radio. Uh,
2: you know, <clears throat> my in my later... Uh, assignments in the army uh, I uh, was the director of uh, Army Aeronautical Services Agency and uh, as such I was sort of like the administrator of the FAA for the army and uh, I learned a great deal more than I had known as an airline pilot that uh, there are national security measures um, for the national airspace and um, That allow air traffic controllers to uh, to take the situation, you know, and and, uh, be prepared to deal with uh, that exact sort of thing. Um, And I visited, spent a lot of time out at the uh, the FAA's emergency operations center, and uh, I even had some of my own um, troops deployed out there uh, in in a. watch position and a staff advisory position for them, uh, liaison with uh, Department of Defense assets, so it was uh, it was quite an eye-opener. And there, there are a lot of people, um, as I've said before about Desert Storm, you know, one of the things that uh, really amazed me were, were the planners uh, and how, how detailed they were in, uh, in having us prepared. And uh, I'll say there are a lot of planners in, uh, in our civilian aspects of the federal government that uh, are very, very um, forward-thinking, and they have a lot of plans for uh, eventualities, bad things that can happen. They are uh, give me quite a bit of confidence.
1: It's very interesting because um, I was working at a radio station when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, I was very young, obviously, but I just assumed, well, you know, our station manager will go in and uh, pull a book off the shelf, and here's what you do when a president's assassinated. Well, there wasn't such a book, And the same way with uh, 9-11, you know, I don't think at the time that uh, there was a book that here's what you do, and uh, it's interesting to note from what you're saying, there were were contingency plans.
2: Yeah, uh, of course, you know, you can't have a book for every contingency. But, you know, you can make generalities and have different readiness levels uh, uh, pre-briefed and understood so that, uh, um, you know, they were able to uh, execute. Um, at, now, at the time, it's, it's changed since then, but at the time of 9-11, what, what they had was uh, something called SCATANA, which is security conditions of air traffic, uh, and navigational aids, and uh, and that's what they instituted uh, on nine eleven.
1: Um, Who would call that the director uh, of FAA?
2: Yep, yeah, this comes from you know from the director of the FAA, and of course the, the national you know command authorities uh, have um, have uh, liaison access uh, to uh, to executing this. Uh, but uh, yeah I, you know I would say probably one of our very first presidents that was uh, uh, that was energized in all of this my experience been uh, that uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, was uh, got a lot of this stuff going and it's uh, not surprising um, you know he was uh, a supreme uh commander of Allied Forces Europe uh, during the uh, Second World War uh, executed uh, the invasion of Normandy, and, you know, the defeat of Nazi Germany um, you know, he was uh, oversaw the, the standing up of the uh, the building of the Pentagon The uh, changed from uh, the War Department to uh, then um the, uh, you know, actually the, the War Department was not the forerunner of the Department of Defense. Uh, it was uh, the, the War Department's the forerunner of the Department of the Army. Um, during World War II, the, the, uh, the War Department was over the Army and the Army Air Forces was not over the uh, Navy. And so um, when, they, when they stood up Department of Defense in 1947, it was a completely new animal. Um, and, uh, you know, Eisenhower, um, was, uh, president, uh, inherited the first Cold War, you know, when he became president in, uh,
1: 1952,
2: uh, not a pen, 53, I guess he assumed 52, off. wasn't it? And, um. You know, saw an into to the the Korean conflict, or, or at least a, a lasting pause, and then um, you know the the build up the, the Rosenbergs, the the Soviet nuclear threat, um, the uh, and uh, a lot of uh, things that that Eisenhower did were excellent for our national readiness. He um, he came up with the interstate highway system. Uh, specifically
1: for landing airplanes of,
2: uh, transporting moving around intercontinental ballistic missiles that's why the, the, the design standards for interstates had certain overpass requirements and straightaway maximum curves and that kind of thing and um, you know so he, uh, he instituted a lot of uh, what we call continuity of government uh, operations um, this from a guy who graduated from West Point, I think, in 1903. Take us all the way into this nuclear age. It's pretty interesting.
1: You know, let me ask, Uh, obviously uh, I was sitting here and thinking about uh, a period of time, and, and then it dawned on me, well, yes, Kennedy was in the Navy, but what you're you're very high in bragging on Eisenhower, which I, I totally agree with. But then we had Kennedy, and obviously only three years, and then we had Johnson that I don't think had any military action at all. And, uh, you know, how do you feel about uh, you know what you were saying about Eisenhower I think is fantastic, and he had the forethought and foresight to see that we needed a system and we needed something and do you think the ball stopped with him?
2: Well, you know, it's hard for me to say. Uh, Many, many, many of our um, presidents served in the Army and then uh, when John Kennedy was elected we got our first uh, Navy veteran as uh, president. Um, Johnson was, uh, also Navy. Um, and then, uh, Nixon was Navy. Um, and, uh, Gerald Ford was Navy. And, um, Jimmy Carter was Navy. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was Army, and then uh, I guess the next one we had uh, then George H.W. Uh, Bush was Navy, and then uh, Bill Clinton was
1: uh, nothing. You
2: know, let's move on, and then uh, there was uh, George W. Bush, and he was uh, Air Guard. Uh, so, and uh, and now we have um, Joe Biden who's career uh, politician.
1: And it shows. Yeah. You know, this is uh, something that uh, well, we're going to take our next break, and uh, we'll come back with Lieutenant Colonel Farsberg, retired, right after a couple of messages, and... uh, want to uh, just shout out about the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame and the wonderful job that Rick White does down there. And Rick was, a re- he's a retired colonel, and uh, I tell you, he's got such a wonderful son, Graham. And uh, he's a colonel and uh, at, at the war school right now, and any veteran knows exactly what that means. So we'll be back right after a couple of messages. And I do want to thank folks for listening. And also want to thank uh, a number of folks that have joined as patrons. And uh, we do appreciate it. Every dollar counts. And uh, if we get to the point that we can uh, contribute some back, we will we'll do that as well. But right now, we're right in the middle of remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we have Lieutenant Colonel retired Phil Forsberg on. Uh, Phil, I... I would be remiss in my own mind if I didn't ask you what your thoughts are on our surrendering to the Taliban and more importantly, as I mentioned a minute ago or asked a minute ago, uh, the amount of equipment that we left behind, I just, it's deplorable.
2: Yeah, um, you know, uh, i spent enough time uh, in uh, military service and around the uh, Pentagon in the uh, military budgeting process to not be terribly concerned about uh, the, the squandering of, of dollars on equipment and stuff. More concerning to me uh, about the equipment Uh, is the capability that we've uh, given to uh, those who wish us harm. Uh, However, uh, the thing that really concerns me is uh, the lives that are endangered now, both the civilian and uh, those uh, in uniform uh, as a result of this uh, this ill-considered withdrawal. Um, you, you, you. Just, uh, I, I can't imagine that there were any actual military planners that that signed on to any of this willingly. Um, it just uh, the disaster is unspeakable, and uh, I, I feel like there's a huge danger to, uh, to our population uh, and I think that um, people by and large don't have an appreciation for the, the impact of it and unfortunately I don't think they have the appreciation that they're going to have in the near future regarding this um, and so uh, it's it, Gives me a great deal of concern um, when you compile that with um, the uh, the impact it'll have on uh, recruiting and retaining uh, troops, uh, you know, to uh, to serve. It's, it's very concerning, uh, and uh, I just talking to somebody today who told me, well, maybe we'll just have to go back to the draft. And uh, I really don't think uh, that uh, our snowflake population uh, really is going to do well with that.
1: No, I don't either. Let me ask you something. My thought initially after after the truth came out about the amount of equipment that we'd left behind, as well as people... You know you always or when I was in the service, you always had a bug one a bug out plan, and two, you always had a contingency plan if something did go wrong, and obviously something went way wrong, or it never was planned to go right to begin with but and i and I was certainly never in your position, but my first thought was as soon as we realized what was going on, I would have sent in the 82nd and the 101st and gotten our damn equipment out of there and said, you know, it's ours, it ain't yours, and don't try to take it. And if we got it over there, by golly, we could get it out of there. And I wouldn't have taken any any slack from the Taliban or anybody else and just sent in our troops and Gotten what's ours back?
2: Yeah, um, you know, uh, we left in such a hurry, there was no way to really take anything out with us. But uh, on the other hand, if uh, if you know you're uh, having to leave sensitive equipment behind, there's there's always a way to destroy it, um, so it's not of use to the enemy and uh you know it's as simple as a as a thermite grenade um, place a thermite grenade on each, on top of each of those uh Black Hawk helicopters Apache helicopters be ashamed to watch but uh it burn it down to uh some unusable uh massive scrap uh in just a few minutes and uh could have done that but we didn't
1: somebody uh was on and told me that uh as far as the Blackhawks were concerned they had they had declared them unusable because they had broken the windows.
2: well, I don't know about that broken windows, you say,
1: yeah, that they had well, broken the windows, and hello, I think windows can be replaced, yeah. I mean, this was just a a total cluster from the get-go. And quite frankly, from America's web radio standpoint, there's only one person to blame, in my opinion. And uh, we've got to get him out of office. There's no telling what he's going to do next to destroy our country, in my opinion. And uh, this this is... You know, not only the equipment, but obviously the folks. And you know, this is this is something else. And uh, and I don't know how closely you worked with some, but you know, it's it's like the the last uh, drone attack we did. Well, we blew away a a friendly, and um, the importance of I don't if somebody hadn't served or hadn't been in the situation, they don't know how important. A friendly is an interpreter or somebody that can help you that's on the ground and knows what's going on and that you rely on and there's no excuse for leaving any of those behind because they're going to have their heads cut off and you know this is you you hit it right on the head Phil this is much more serious than the American public realizes and it's going to come back to haunt us in my opinion for years
2: well I have uh, in front of me a transcript of uh, a letter that was written by Dwight Eisenhower uh, to uh, to the American people that was to be delivered in case of uh, in case of uh, the failure of the Normandy invasion he says our landings in the Cherbourg, Haver region, uh, failed to gain satisfactory foothold. I have withdrawn the troops. My decision at this uh, to attack at this time and place was based upon the information available. The troops, the air, and Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone.
1: You know, um, personally, I I respected and liked Eisenhower, certainly through World War II. And uh, not that I was around in World War II, but certainly in history. But, you know, the one place that I was, I've always been extremely disappointed in, Eisenhower. And... Maybe you can refresh my memory. I I can't give you an exact date. I can tell you that it was in the, uh, I believe, it was in the spring of 53 or 54, and we had had built and turned Saudi Arabia into an oil-producing country and Saudi Arabia nationalized all of the oil wells. Do you remember that?
2: No, I wasn't born until about five years later. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't guess you'd remember it. But that's, and what came out of it was that, okay, we own the oil wells now, and this this is after negotiations, and I wasn't around when they were negotiating it, but it was for all of our major oil companies to go into Saudi Arabia and make it into a producing oil country. And we did. And we own the oil wells. And they own the oil, but we own the wells. And um, so what came out of it, and you can check this in history, was that, uh, and this is where OPEC came along and all this kind of garbage, but they... In one felt swoop, and it was on a Sunday, that it was announced that Saudi Arabia had taken over all of the United States' corporate interest in oil wells in Saudi Arabia. And as they negotiated it, they gave us the Mobil and all the big Exxon and all the big uh, Chevron, all the big uh, oil companies, they gave us the right to refine it. But no longer did we own the oil wells or the equipment. And as history would have it, we walked away from it. And I always, I've always, i always blamed Eisenhower. It was under his administration, under his time in office, that he really didn't stand up and do anything. He didn't say, whoa, Nellie, uh, you can't do that. He just let him do it. And the only thing we walked away with was the, uh, we had no producing rights, we only had refining rights. And uh, this is all in the history books, or you can look, Google, or whatever you want to do with it. But that was the one disappointment that uh, Eisenhower, for my money, just never did a, didn't do anything about it, just threw up his hands and said, I can't do anything.
2: I'm not familiar with that situation I did I did serve in Saudi Arabia uh sometime after that um and uh they most certainly had oil producing assets there
1: oh yeah and um they were all built by the United States and um I don't know this was that was the only time that i felt like eisenhower didn't stand up like he should have but uh you know that's that's only my opinion well with that uh we need to take one last break and that will do and then we'll finish up remembering desert shield and desert storm right after this
0: hi this is rocky blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population.
1: And we're back with Lieutenant Colonel retired Philip Forsberg, and uh, Philip, you got some more interesting information to talk about, so I'm going to turn it back over to you.
2: Yeah. Um, so, disabled American veterans, of which uh, I'm a member, and uh, um, I serve as a as a service officer, uh, helping veterans with their claims. Um, they started a fund to uh, defend and advocate for our service members who have been, uh, many of them have been discharged dishonorably uh, because of behavior problems that have, uh, that have their origins in um, traumatic brain injuries that they've suffered uh, through combat in uh... iraq and afghanistan and uh... so these injuries have caused um, have caused uh... behavior issues with these troops that have uh... resulted in uh... honorable discharges. and uh... when that happens they lose all their uh... benefits from the v-a and they also uh... you know are, are Discharged without any um, uh, pension or uh, or you know uh, disability payment, and uh, you know if you have a uh, a dishonorable discharge, you're not entitled to uh, to your VA disability compensation. It's a, it's tragedy, uh, and uh, the the DAV is is. Started up a fund to to defend these guys and to take on, you know, not as a class action but case by case these uh, these injustices. And that, I'll tell you, it's um, every in every way that we treat our veterans uh, has an impact on those who are willing to serve in the future. Um, it's very very poor business decision to uh, to deal treacherously with those who have uh, risked their lives for our nation. Um, on that note, uh, I would just like to encourage anybody who's listening who is a vet, knows a vet, or maybe currently serving on active duty, uh, if you need help with Veterans Administration, uh, to contract a service officer from uh, either disabled American veterans, American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, any number of veteran service organizations. Uh, just contact your local chapter and tell them you'd like to speak to a service officer. And uh, there's never any charge for the services that are rendered, and you find some real expert advice there and things that will help you untangle the uh, roadblocks that are there uh, between the veteran and his benefits.
1: You know, this is a a good time for me to add that uh, so many of our veterans suffer from PTSD and uh, have trouble sleeping at night. Well, as I've mentioned before, there is a doctor. He He was a medic. And so he knows what it's like to be in the in the heat of the battle uh he was a dentist, and then he came back and also became a medical doctor but uh Don has a remedy it's not a cure it's just a a process that uh if you're having if you have p t s d you've been diagnosed with it and you're having sleeping disorders this he's it's like it's incredible. He has a a 99% success rate with the product that he has. And if you drop me a line, David, at America's Web Radio, I'll put you in contact with Don. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, there are a lot of folks that are interested in helping the veterans. And there are so many, you know, there are veterans that... Well, you know, yeah, I know I got it, but I don't want to, I don't want to go see anybody. Well, if you, you know, if you need to see somebody, see them. And they're not going to make fun of you, or nobody's going to know anything. It's just, there are people that want to help you, let them help you. And, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Phil, Phil, Philip Farsberg is one of those people. And, um. you know, they can't find you. You have to find them. And you know, there there is help, and there is help for PTSD. Let me ask you, Phil, on the on the uh, traumatic brain injuries, is that a diagnosis by a VA uh, doctor, or can it be by an independent uh, personal care physician?
2: Um. Yeah, it, it can be from uh, from a non VA and non military doctor. you uh, would have to uh, you know put it down as uh, that it, in his opinion it uh, was a result of a traumatic brain injury. The the real strength of uh, of a service connection is is to have a documentation of the incident, um, and uh, if that documentation. Uh, substantiates then it's uh, it's service connected and um, uh, so that, uh, but your service officer will help you with all of that
1: let me, um, let me ask you while you're talking about getting information to my knowledge the National Archives Personnel Administration is still not open do you know any different Phil?
2: I don't. I think you're referring to the National Personnel Records Center, yes, sir, which uh, is which is a which is a, uh, a division under under the National Archives. And uh, my understanding that January 2020 they stopped coming to work, and they said that caution to protect their uh, employees, so we're going to be doing any more requests. And of course, that has caused a huge backlog of requests. records so um, as I'm handing out advice one thing I would like to suggest is if you're on active duty or if you know somebody on active duty make sure before you or they leave active duty they leave with a copy of all of their medical records an electronic and a hard copy of their records very important
1: and that DD two fourteen is probably the most important piece of paper you'll put your hands on.
2: Right. The DD two fourteen is a Department of Defense form two fourteen, and uh, it establishes the dates of service, the characterization of discharge. Uh, it establishes uh, schools, awards, uh, combat tours. Uh, it's essentially a, a resume or a summary of all of your of your service. Uh, in one concise document, very important to have when substantiating claims.
1: Well, and I keep asking uh, for every veteran show that we do that, please, I'm pleading with you, call your representative, call your senator, and put the heat on the National Archives to open up the personnel administration portion, where veterans can get their records. They're killing people, and that sounds melodramatic, but it's the truth. If Just like you said a minute ago, Phil, about if you needed to identify where you were at when you were sprayed with Agent Orange or you needed to identify when you were, uh, what happened to get a uh, traumatic brain injury, That's where you'd go, and not everybody has those, but the National Archives, the Personnel Record Division, should have them, and we've got to get that open again. Uh, I don't know what it's going to take. I've been begging people to call and and begging them to somehow get reopened, and uh, this is going on now for uh, six months. And like you said, they've been closed. Yeah, you and I differ on dates, but it was my understanding they've been closed since March the 29th, 2020. And that's ridiculous. Absolutely absurd. When the government asks you to put your life on the line, the least they can do when you come back is be able to perform their end of the deal and get you what you need. So, you know, any other comments about what's going on in Afghanistan right now?
2: Uh, I'd I just like to urge uh, the listeners to uh, be vigilant uh, and to know when something's out of place um, and uh, to, um, you know, report things that uh, look suspicious and, um, You know, uh, I'm not sure how many people remember, but, uh, you know, there was a a terrorist who um, opened fire on a uh, recruiting station in a a strip mall uh, up in uh, Chattanooga. Um, And, you know, um, I live in Kennesaw, and I don't think that attack would have gone off too well in Kennesaw. Hmm. But, um, the, uh, you know, it, it it's, a, it's a vigilance thing we had after 9-11, everybody was, uh, on their toes, um, you know, looking and, and uh, concerned about various things. Um, anything didn't look right, but I think, uh, now we're more interested in, uh, some sort of foolish ideas, uh. And uh, I think we need to. People need to take a, a reality break and and figure out, you know, just who means us harm and uh, to what what they're going to do about it. Because uh, it, it's a responsibility for each of us to, uh, to to take care, to be on guard, to be part of uh, vanguard, uh, preventing further problems from happening. Um, so one person can be uh, a big factor in all that.
1: Absolutely, and uh, if it doesn't look right, find somebody to tell it to. And, uh, you know, they uh, I can remember afterwards, you know, just carrying a, a backpack into the airport could uh, get you stopped which I had, I've never had a problem with. Somebody, if they want to find out what I'm carrying, they're more than welcome to, because I'm not trying to hide anything. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, and this goes for the situation with the, the bombing in Boston, I believe. Some of the neighbors had seen the guy working on the bomb in his garage and knew him, and, you know, so just like Phil said, and you did a wonderful job of saying it, Phil, just be alert. Know what's going on around you. And if you see something that's strange, tell somebody. With that being said, we've got to get out of here, Phil. Thank you again for today and always. And uh, hopefully our country will come back around and, and we will think of America first, as it should be. And We are first, and we always will be.
2: And and just uh, my parting thought, David, is for for Americans to be kind to each other.
1: Yes, sir. A great thought. And we'll be back next week with more of Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Stay tuned for more.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.